Hey everybody, welcome to the show. My name is Eric Wright. I am your host of the Disco Posse podcast. This is an exciting show coming up. A return guest. So cool. Uh, Super exciting. A lot of fun and a really deep conversation. Uh, But before we get started with that, I have to make sure that I give a big shout out to returning sponsors, our good friends over at Veeam Software. Because I can tell you, if you're listening to me, odds are you're probably somewhere in the space of startups or enterprise or IT or something, and you got some data, you got services, you got applications. So how do you make sure that you protect that? The ultimate in cloud data management, you want to go to your single backup and data management platform for cloud, virtual, and physical, even SaaS. You can back up your Office 365, AWS backup and recovery. We've got Kasten, which is a new acquisition by the company of Veeam. So they're doing cloud native stuff. It's literally every aspect of your environment right down to the metal. Uh, so make sure you can get the ultimate in cloud data management with Veeam. So if you go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, you can find out all about their different solutions. Make sure that you're getting the one you need. There's just such a fantastic group of folks. Uh, again, I'm a longtime user of the platform uh, and I, I just love the team. They've been really supportive and you can all even check out uh we actually had their cto danny allen on fellow canadian uh that was a really great show uh back if you go through the episode list all right the secondary sponsor to this is uh well sort of me uh in fact uh, i'm very proud to have been able to take my learnings and and experiences in the industry around technical product uh, marketing and 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 presenting and doing presentations and I've created the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. Time after time after time, I run into technical folks who are getting into becoming sales engineers and systems engineers. And, and what ends up happening is they really have trouble relating the story and connecting and engaging with their clients and customers or prospects. So this is the way to do it. If you go to velocityclosing.com, I've actually done a great ebook. It's just absolutely targeted at making sure you can deliver better demos that tell a story, connect with your people, and it will result in win deals. I've actually got customers that have proven that it does. So go to velocityclosing.com. You can find out more. And in fact, if you sign up now, you get the bundle and you get the audiobook as well. All right, now let's get to the good stuff. This is the actual show. I'm so happy to have been able to have a really strong and, and like insightful conversation again with Ava Black. Uh, Ava is just a fantastic human, somebody who I've been lucky enough to be able to spend time with previously in the podcast. If you go back, Ava was on the show. Uh, they've been somebody who I've I've been watching you know, through the open source world for a long time. Uh, so big thanks to Ava for talking about the Confidential Computing Consortium and much more. With that, let's get started. This is an exciting opportunity. I rarely get a chance because there's been so much going on to actually come back to guests who I legitimately would have on every week if I could. Uh, Ava, you are uh, on on my very short list of people who I really enjoyed our discussion last time because it was really deep. We covered a lot of interesting and and some some challenging stuff around bias and and. We're, we're going to go into some of, you know, we're going to go into a lot today, um, but 
as we just talked before we started recording, a lot's happened uh, <laughs> recently with you. So yeah. let's let's get you to reintroduce yourself to the folks who maybe didn't catch the first episode. I'll make sure to put a link in for the previous one as well, because it was really, really cool what we talked about. So, uh, but let's start there. Welcome Ava to uh, the podcast again. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. And, and all the, you know, I'm flattered. Um, but yeah, since joining Microsoft, I've jumped into the Confidential Computing Consortium. So I'm, we have a, a department called the Azure Confidential Compute Team. And within that team, I am the open source PM. So I sort of coordinate and run all of our engagements with open source communities, whether we're consuming or contributing to them from uh, the, that whole domain of confidential computing. It's kind of an amazing spot to sit and look at all of the emerging technology uh, in this, this new sort of field in the industry. It's not totally new, it's been around for a couple of years. And SGX I think is five or six years old now, Trust Zone as well. And, a lot of different, um, you know, all of the chip vendors have been doing something in this space, but with, with the CCC being created last, uh, last year, a little over 12 months ago now, um, we're starting to pull everybody together to one table to talk about how do we solve the common problems across all the CPU vendors, across all the cloud vendors, and there's so many startups in this space now as well. How do we you know, talk about and reason about in consistent ways across this diversity of, of different projects that are solving similar but different problems. It, and it, it is an interesting challenge just in its root, like what, what we're actually trying to, to work yeah. towards. So in and of itself, if one single group was attempting to describe the issue, and the challenge and the potential, you know, ways that we can get through this and get towards a, a goal. But to do it as a consortium is actually, uh, it's a big bite. Uh, and there's a lot of strong voices at the table, but it feels to me like it, it is a very good, it's, a, it's people are on a common ground everyone succeeds. There's really no, like when we get into consortiums and foundations and, and working groups and SIGs and all the stuff, like, you know, from being in open source, like we've seen it very much get like move towards the, we agree with open standards. That's why we're going to recommend ours. Right. And you end up with the sort of vendor strength of voice yeah. and strength of contributors and it can overwhelm the group. But in this area, from what I've studied and and I'll let you kind of maybe explain me right or wrong on this there definitely is a a very agnostic approach that's being taken and and I think we're we're going down a neat track with it I'm glad to hear you think that it's it's certainly a different uh, ecosystem than cognitive computing was in its early days right where that ecosystem emerged around one anchoring project kubernetes so, you know such a large project it had a lot of momentum early on and some very opinionated players as well. Um, and a lot of projects that existed that sort of predated Kubernetes that were outside of the foundation in its early days. Whereas in this foundation, there's a lot of exploration still happening and a lot of different solutions that are being created. And there isn't that singular anchor uh, or, or you know, elephant uh, in, the, in the consortium, but a lot of interest from uh, chip vendors on the one hand and from cloud vendors, most of them to work together to come up with 
common solutions. I, I look at where the real problem needs to be solved. And, and this is that we're actually seeing it play out now, which is good. As you say, it's, it, we're seeing stuff from the chip vendors and from the, because literally this is where this stuff gets attacked. It doesn't get attacked in the yeah. workload. It doesn't get attacked in the network. It generally is much closer to the metal where this stuff gets compromised, where we capture stuff. And we're seeing even, you know, VMware was an example where they have like transparent page sharing. And there's an issue where that could be, you know, another object in the same, in a relative memory space could actually capture content through transparent page sharing. And it was like very, very low down at the cache layer, very, very tightly close to the CPU itself. And it was, so you'd think like, you're worried about, as we should, you know, a firewall rule that's on the outside of your application. Right. But in fact, where the larger groups are attacking stuff is way further down the stack, right? When we, when we talk about security holistically, right, we talk about defense in depth, and I really like the analogy of Swiss cheese. You want to protect something, you put all these different layers in front of it, and each layer might have some holes. Some you might know about, some might be, you know, zero days, but we hope collectively the sum of all those layers, nothing gets through. And so uh, technologies like trusted execution environments or hardware roots of trust or um, TPMs is another layer we can add to protect against hardware-based attacks or software attacks that, that might, uh, you know, bypass or utilize other layers of that. So for example, the premise of of uh, memory protected pages, whether it's with SEV, SEV SMP from AMD or um, IBM's uh, PEF, pardon me, I forget what it stands for, um, or SGX, right? Each of these is trying to create a, a protected memory region where even the root user, the host operating system, DOM0, cannot access what's in that unless it has the right cryptographic keys. And those keys are only temporarily released um, by a third-party attestation service to enable that section of memory to be encrypted and, and a program run in it. And so, hypothetically speaking, the promise here is that this application or this workload is now protected even against the host, even against the firmware in the system outside the CPU itself. And yeah, so even, even in a state of compromise, it's a temporary compromise unless you can ultimately compromise the attestation service and generate your own keys, which is, right. you're in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there's the, the attack surface sort of, it closes one door while opening others, right? The, the old story of, well, someone, you know, rented a VM on the same node in my, that, that my workload is in the cloud and they popped out of that VM and now from from host, they're able to read the memory in my VM. Like that's one of the vectors that this is intended to protect against. It's the it's the funny thing too, where we've security in general and confidentiality, anything in this area of privacy, we really, really struggle as a as a society, not even as an industry, on the sense that it is a binary state. Uh, and I mean, the last time I, I heard about, you know, true binary is uh, unsinkable ships. And last time I checked, every time you called something an unsinkable thing, it, it sunk. <laughs> and not that everything that wasn't called unsinkable, like the most of the non, the very sinkable ships haven't sunk. 
But the the boldness of saying this is unsinkable yeah. made it even more bold because it sunk. And the that same boldness and arrogance to say that we are uh, you know fully secured system and and and. Uh, but we really do want it to be that way. Like humans, we just want it to be right, wrong, black, white. Like we really have this unfortunate sense of binary in the way that we believe things behave. The, the desire to reduce things to easily understandable and communicable components, right? That's, that's natural. And, and it's even increased by our compressed sense of time, right? We have to do things quickly. And so whether it's sales folks or product folks or engineers, I think that's where that comes from, even though it means well, it certainly is not helping uh, in this domain where we do need the specificity and clarity to, to talk about what is improved by a particular piece of software or a particular solution and what is not addressed by it. So an example, I'd love to, to talk about some actual threat models if, you're, if you want to. Absolutely, yeah. The, w this is the this is why I make sure we have time because I know yeah. it's rare we can we get a chance to dig in. And you, sadly, I I seen and I've seen some of your your talks and other folks talking about the the the, the consortium and, and in general. And it's always tough because we it's you get fifteen minutes and like it's not that that isn't a fantastic forum in which to talk about it, but. This is, so we can we can go as deep as you would like, Ava. This is this is our chance. <laughs> I'm. So, so two things that are on the top of my mind right now. One was a, you know, another um, unfortunate attack against Intel SGX that was uh, released a couple weeks ago, and Intel's response was a little awkward. Like it's a hardware attack for apparently for you know, it's in the news, right? For thirty bucks, you can get a little thing and attach it to the motherboard and bypass a bunch of the SGX protections. Like that's, that's cool. Someone thought of that, and also, you know. We've got to be able to build protections that that and and processes that talk about the security more specifically. Like, okay, it protects against a hypervisor-based attack. It protects against software, but this technology does or does not protect against a hardware attack. But even more specific, what kind of hardware attacks can it protect against? We I don't think we're yet at a state as an industry where we can really define what all of those parameters are to talk about to say whether it's on a sales sheet or in a technical white paper, here's the exhaustive list and what we do or don't cover. That might be an interesting uh, objective for some folks. It also might be very CPU dependent. Yeah, and, and again, it goes to the, the, the unfortunate need for us to have a simplistic explanation. And I don't mean simplistic in the sense that it's like we are simple-minded, but literally we just, we just wanted to we want it to be obvious and make sense in the way that we hear it. And even to say, as you said, like hardware, what's a hardware-based approach? And the first thing they're like, oh, no worries. You know, we, we, we rarely, you have no exposure to the physical hardware. Like, well, there's a lot of, even hardware, it's a very broad, you know, it's like saying I've got a car problem. Okay, describe what you mean by a <laughs> <Right>. car problem. It's <laughs> wheels, uh, engine, gas, a uh, lot of, lot of yep. things. <laughs> and, yep. and Bloomberg, you know, TechCrunch, they they don't get paid. You know, if they produce a four thousand word article to describe a problem, they'll yeah. get a forty two second view. Or if they have a four hundred word article, they'll get forty eight seconds. So they're not incented to to take the longer you know story. I mean, and here's a good example. And if I say, you know, uh, Amazon recently had a, an issue in US East One. 
uh, which resulted in a variety of exciting things that they discovered. So they had some discovered some hardware and some OS boundaries that they got on the wrong side of. It took down a variety of services. And they went through what I found was a fantastic sort of postmortem in the public eye. In, and they're, they're, they're good. You know, mo most companies these days are very good at providing a true sort of technical tear down of stuff. They have to. They're obviously with a number of customers and, you know, Azure and, and, and Google go through the same, same sort of uh, rigor in describing the issues. So they go through that and I was like, this is really cool. And I dug in because I kind of nerded out on it, but I realized like, well, most people are just going to say, oh, AWS went down. So they're unreliable. And you're like, oh no, no, like, this is, that's not at all. What the, that yeah. was not, that may have been the headline, <laughs> but that's not, you know, let's narrow down. It's, it's even when we talk about when companies get compromised, the headline is always like Intel, you know, you know, results, you know, through Intel, you know, a company was compromised just like, and I, I, I just picking names out of a hat. And what you find is that maybe somebody called into a call center and said, I'm having trouble. I need to reset my right. password. And, and they use social engineering and then it, but the headline never, like most people only read the bloody headline. And then that's yeah. what the world walks away with an opinion of. And yeah. so, you know, it's uh it's weird. Sorry. That's my diatribe on no, like the, it's, it's totally, uh, I totally agree. So when it comes to confidentiality and the, the concept of maybe just, can you lay out what is the goal of confidential sure. computing? Maybe for folks that are new to it. Yeah, and, and even the, the use of the term confidential, even though we're you know, only a little over a year into the existence of the Confidential Computing Consortium, it's already overloaded. It means different things to different people. Um, so let me pull up our actual definition, which you know, I ought to be able to remember offhand. Um, it's, a, it's what happens when you invite marketing people to the, uh, to the event. Eventually they got to put up a PowerPoint or something, but well, and it's, this is the irony and the strangeness of our industry, Ava, that we like Heartbleed had the best marketing department. Oh my gosh. Ever. Like when stuff like this I comes love the up names. and it's like, you've got, you get vulnerable. I got zero days that have a better, better, yeah. you know, chance of getting a YC funding rounds than most real startups <laughs> because they, they've got a, they got a logo, they've got a description, uh -huh. they get a website, so they get all these customers. <laughs> Uh -huh. It's, yep. it's uh -huh. kind of weird. So then yet we have a genuine, really sort of broad coverage group of folks that are attacking a very yeah. interesting challenge. And then, yeah, now we got to like, yeah, then how do we, how do we, how do we into the middle? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, the general idea is to protect data in use, right? Traditionally, we had encryption at rest, right? you encrypt your hard drive, encrypt your files, and we added encryption in transit. SSL TLS everywhere, even inside the firewall, great. But memory is not, or application data is not protected while it's in use. So that's the sort of third, third leg of the stool to protect your data at all times against attack. And so this, this looks like, for practical purposes at least, protecting the integrity of the application code you want to make sure that the code running is the code you want running and hasn't been changed in some way by somebody else. You want the data integrity, no one's tampering with it, and data confidentiality, right? To be able to protect and secure the data at runtime from being exfiltrated or modified in some way that you didn't intend. The, the reason that, that we don't say that we have to have uh, code confidentiality is if you have code integrity, 
and at least you know it isn't going to misbehave and, and do something wrong with your data. But there's a, a longer list of seven or eight properties overall, and they're all in the, the technical white paper that we've produced that describe additional um, attributes of confidential computing that are often desirable, often present, and useful for comparing it to other technologies in the space, like homomorphic encryption and differential privacy. And uh, in part to distinguish this foundation from other foundations working on similar problems, um, we've, we've laid out how those stack up. Like the you know, homomorphic encryption does not rely on hardware. It tends to be slower because you're doing all of the extra encryption, not hardware accelerated or not in hardware in the same way. Um, differential privacy tries to solve a very different problem of obfuscating data just enough to preserve privacy. Um, whereas what we're doing is, you know, all, all confidential computing that the consortium deals with is rooted in hardware protection. And, and that is it's actually a really interesting project I need to go dig in more to called Keylime, uh, Key.Lime. Um, and like Sounds saying, tasty. I, 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 yeah. I feel like I need a dessert now. <laughs> <laughs> They've got some good marketing too, but it's not hard plate level. Um, <laughs> they're, they're using a, a mirror TPM. I'm saying mirror because they're, they're much smaller chips, they're lighter weight, and they're pretty common now to attempt to provide, or they, they claim they provide a lot of very similar protections to what things like SEV might provide in terms of attestation of code integrity and well, if the code is secure, uh, then you can guarantee its behavior at runtime, assuming you can prove that it continues to be the code you want it to be and hasn't been changed. So one of the differences there is something like Keyline, as far as I'm aware right now, doesn't prevent a privileged user on the host from modifying it directly. Right? Your DOM zero, if it's malicious or there's malicious firmware in a, in a SATA controller could still change things. Right. Whereas with um, the projects in the consortium, in theory, we protect against that threat. And this is the thing of doing it at, at the lowest level in hardware, close to hardware, and doing it systematically. Because what we find, as you describe, right, is the, it's the data and code in use that you could encrypt this stuff all you want. And that's really what it is, right? I could have, you know, uh, any anything that's encrypted, but if I then carry it around and I show it to people, effectively, that's the same thing. It's like, I've, how many times have I sat on a plane and just like, just sit there and look at somebody over someone's shoulder sitting beside me. And it says oh like big, like, you know, confidential government, what, and like, they don't even have a screen, you know, uh, way of, of morphing the, yeah. the view of the screen. <laughs> Good thing that's marked confidential, kid. Uh, yeah. And this is where we, it, this is the, the, also the human condition, that when we see the word secure in one layer of our stack, there's yeah. an unfortunate trust and belief that whatever was secure there, thus, carries its security throughout its journey and life cycle. And in fact, mm -hmm. that is so far from it. And as you said, even I know lots of people, even in that are security minded. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I publish it on my own, my own vendor site, right? Here's our download. Here's the MD5 checksum. I could literally, I could tell you that there's not a single person I know that's ever actually measured the checksum against the download. It's, we put it there in the hopes that it's at least a, 
a, a show that, hey, if you checked it, it would be true. But even at that very simple layer, we just see, oh, it's going to check some. Therefore, it must be cool. <laughs> like, yeah. no, it's there for a reason <laughs> because you shouldn't trust it unless this is the case. And even there, it's sitting on a website entirely possible that also has been compromised <laughs> right and and if the md5 sum is on the same website that you download the file from yeah. if someone has access to change one they can change the other it's like taping the key to the lock <laughs> yeah yeah and saying we have a key therefore it's secure yeah i've i brought this up in conversations with package managers um you know for python and, and other languages where some of the the common tools for installing a, a package don't even support checksum validation. And what we ideally want for package distribution is both checksum and signature validation, but the first step is hard enough. Getting to full signature chain validation is more difficult for a, a large package ecosystem like Python or Node.js, but it, it would be nice. And there's a bunch of work, I'm not gonna jump into it too deeply, but I'm also sort of tangentially aware of the software supply chain um, security work going on, and I think it's the OpenSSF now is trying to sort of systematically look at this for the whole open source ecosystem, which is a huge undertaking. I wish them good luck with that, but it, it's a good it's not a It's not an easy challenge, but I, yeah, when it's too localized, I, I find it just doesn't get the doesn't get the advertisement that it needs to see that it's actually a problem that needed to be solved. Yeah. Um, and sadly, like even where we have potentially in the stack, in somewhere in the chain that we do have, you know, check some, you know, uh, validation, something like that, mm -hmm. then you know that someone's just doing a pseudo bash to do that thing. And right. like just totally blowing any purposes of security, you know, or, or validation mm -hmm. out the door because we have to take that, you know, or, or brew. You know, people always ask me like, why don't you like homebrew? I'm like, well, for one thing, I run Ruby on my laptop. So every time I do something with homebrew, it inevitably needs an update. And I don't really know what's going on in the update other than it's going to wreck my Ruby environment almost every time, or it'll blow up TLS or, or you know, something in the CA. So we end up in this thing of, that's how pseudo bash becomes a thing because you just like look i i don't know what's going on it broke the the one time so if i just run this as pseudo it'll work and i just need this to work and the impatience of 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 us as a human need you were like okay so we take shortest path uh to destination which is i need my code to be running and and i'll do this thing and, and like i said in the open source world even if we lean into a a SIG or a, or, or a, you know, package manager group or, or, you know, Python, Ruby, whoever it's going to be. At best, if we succeed in that local community, the methodology may not map to another party. So I know I say this is weird. Like I'm basically walking myself into this is why it doesn't work because <laughs> we we're, we're kind of a broken yeah. We're broken people. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of justifying the, the reason for the OpenSSF to exist. It's like, yeah, it, it is broken today and it's fragmented. And because of that, no one really puts a lot of effort in. And that puts us all at risk. Like we've had a pretty significant increase in supply chain attacks in the past couple of years, whether it's typo squatting and package names or actual like malicious uh, commits in packages. Right. 
there have been some big ones. Um, yeah, and that is, uh, you know, uh, not unlike what we have that there's a, in the same way we have NIH, you know, problems in, in many, you know, tech communities uh, or in vendors, right? This are the not invented here. Therefore, I, I, I don't, I want to do my own thing. There's also the, I'll call it, you know, an, an EH, where it's not exploited here. Or if they have the, the yeah. feeling that they've not been personally exploited, therefore it's, it's not valid. It's also, it's a pervasive psychological challenge, right? It's the same way that when people use, you know, when we talk about, you know, challenges with bias and with, with words and, and, and there's so many things that in, in life and it's very situational that it's, you know, a joke that is, or if I'm the butt of the joke, I'm obviously going to be very directly affected by the sensation when I hear it. If I'm not affected as the butt of the joke, I may not understand, you know, security is the same thing. Yet for some reason, we are very unlikely to uh, aggressively deal with that security. Like we, because we feel it's a difficult problem to solve. We have trouble starting. And, and I say we as the royal societal we, not yeah. we yeah. as, you know, groups of people that are doing fantastic work and trying to solve this. So here's the, here's the question. How is this going to succeed? Mm -hmm. I'll interpret that question as what will it look like when this does succeed? How's that I like sound? where you're going. I like where you're going. <laughs> so I, I have, I would love to see a, a point in time where I can have some sort of a hardware key cryptographic token and I can use that to encrypt my personal data wherever it goes. If it's, you know, being uploaded to a social media site or my docs and, you know, my drive in a cloud um, and, and there's a, a story we came up with at one of the early open infra days. This is probably five years, four or five years ago now, where um, it's a good sort of North Star vision for a lot of what folks are doing in cloud computing and really what we're doing in the consortium as well. Imagine that I've got like a little personal communicator, um, like, you know, Star Trek, and it's got a, a voice trained model, both voice recognition and translation and synthesis. And we're doing machine learning last layer training on that to customize it to me. So it's got a very specific voice imprint for me that can totally synthesize a voice. I don't want that getting in the wrong hands. It also comes with me everywhere I go. I want to be able to get off a plane in some other country, anywhere in the world, and have that device connect to the local cell network, find a local cloud provider, negotiate billing back to my country with you know, whatever home base I've got, move over the you know, Docker image or whatever it needs to run at local, at like next hop up from me somewhere in that country, lowest latency, create an enclave, and then into that enclave, release a copy of my encrypted last layer data for that voice model, do all the work it needs. And then when I'm done, I you know, hop on a plane to leave that country again, it saves that back to my device. And so at, at no point in time is my private data unencrypted and vulnerable to someone else's use. And yet, no matter where I go in the world, I still have access to nearby low latency computational power to do the work I need. 
this is, I'm excited because I, there's many facets of what you described, which are underway, possible. And it sounds like biometric will ultimately be the, the thing that really is going to, at a personal security level, biometric will be the, the, the biggest challenge, but also the most important area. So I'm, I'm curious in how you described it. How, what are the risks on that piece now? Because we talk, obviously, there's voice, yeah. there's uh, you know, there's retinol, there's a lot of different sort of biometrics that are available. Fingerprint, um, I can lose my fingerprint due to I used to be a cobbler, so I sanded my thumb a few times no. and lost a fingerprint. Um, uh, I've I could get a you know I could get a bad cold and I could lose and my voice may be far enough off of a recognizable uh, you know data. It's happened to me. And um, retinol fairly safe. That's a, that's a ha- so safe so that if I have a problem and then no, someone else needs my data, then there's no way they can get it, which is both good and, and also challenging as we look at uh, legacy of data and survivability of data right. as far as um, uh, like sort of like I'm willing my data to you know my heirs yeah. uh, and stuff like that. So sorry, I'm, I'm, it's the reason why I jumped into this track was because I definitely see the technology described as fantastic up to the idea. And it's all doable. Like this idea of this is what, what edge is about low power capabilities. We've got all these features. What's the most challenging part to get done first. The, the biggest obstacle to the picture I just described, I think is cross cloud and cross device workload portability, compatibility, as specifically for attestation and cryptography at this point, right? We've got Docker images, we can move those around. And yeah, there's some different devices like you can't really move it from uh, say x86 to PowerPC. There's some limitations there. But when it comes to the encryption standards, this is all so new. How Intel does attestation versus ARM versus AMD versus uh, everybody else, the RISC-V stuff, they all have completely different attestation frameworks. But to, to realize this, we need a model that can both describe um, device identity in a non-repudiable fashion. Like this is my communicator, and this is the one server that I want to run this on right now. Let them establish a, a secure communication channel and know through some sort of a trusted third party, this is where it all falls apart. Today, we're trusting CPU vendors only in, in some spaces. And in other spaces, we're trying to establish paradigms of communally established trust. And we're working it out, but we don't have an answer yet. And to your point of, of uh, biometrics, on the one hand, these are fantastic ways to identify somebody on the other hand, it's terrifying surveillance if that data is misused. And, and in no case is a biometric identifier ever a security token. It is not a password. You, you know, face unlock has often been shown to work with just a photo. Your fingerprint can be copied pretty easily. Like these are, these are not security measures. They are identity measures. 
Right. And it's so easy to gloss over in conversation and just call it the same thing when it's really not. Yeah, and this is, and so this is one where I was excited knowing we were going to get a chance to talk because when we talk about confidential, it inevitably my mind goes also to privacy, and I'm going to jump out of the confidential computing part of right. the story right now. And we talked in the past about the challenges of data, use of data, uh, biases in data, uh, both at, at a, a personal ones that inject themselves in the way that we, we build models to begin with, as well as, you know, just the, the sample set of data. And COVID as, an, as a worldwide phenomenon exposed the need for us to do things that we, if given time and committees would never happen. However, in order to aggressively deal with a situation which was significant, right? Why? Yeah. I don't even know how to best it like. Yeah, yeah. But I'm with you. We as a society are very quick to give up things to get things and i say this in the it's a tough tough thing to say in order to do things at significant data scale regarding health worldwide communities inevitably both at a local level and at a world level there is a big challenge around data protection the data use the maintenance and, and keeping of that data. I, I'm curious on, Yeah. I'll just, let's just open it there now, because I'd yeah. love to, and I'll say this because I know, I, I wanna be very mindful of, this is you and I having a discussion about the general data. We, we wanna be very careful. Like, and I, I'm very respectful of you, Ava, for we get to talk about really exciting stuff because <laughs> we get into data and, and, and these things. Yeah. So we are separating from the any vendors we work for. This yep. is truly just a, a, a discussion of of the challenge. And and I because yep. I, I, I don't want to have anybody think that I'm walking you into a conversation that they're going to be like, hey, I hear you work at X and, and therefore you represent me. <laughs> That, right. The tweets are my yeah. own sort of thing. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the caveat there. And absolutely, right? I'm, I'm as I was earlier talking about the consortium, I was talking about it as someone who you know does work there and, and yeah, in a sense represents it. But in in this, and really doesn't talk about my own opinions and ideas here, and definitely not representing either the consortium or Microsoft. Right. Um, but there is both global challenges and local in the sense that every country or state um, is trying to trying different ways to solve it based on the social challenges in that space and the technical capabilities available to them. Um, I think in American society, we have a perhaps well-earned fear of surveillance uh, and sadly, sadly, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we could all name names uh, that would come off the top of our head of of folks that have have uh, yeah. told us what's going on, right? 
And that's only the what we know they were able to tell us. It's it's not only what's been exposed, not what's been done. Yeah. Yeah. And so while we while we are pretty sure we have a sense of how much data it could be available to someone with the right clearances, motivation, financial backing, whatever. Right? When we when we talk about security and threat modeling, or sorry, when I talk about it for myself and think about my own personal security, my own personal data security or home security or whatever. I will include in that modeling how motivated is someone to do anything about it. Are my protections um, sufficient to protect against the kind of adversaries I think I might have and the ones that would matter? And, and there are obviously both people in the world and countries in the world that have resources far greater than I personally do. I can't really protect against that. But in terms of how we build data privacy and address this as a society, when we do collectively want to give up, like we reach for that, that solution quickly when, when someone tells us this will alleviate your pain, whether personally or as a society, do this thing. Yes, you're giving it up. You're giving up one thing to get something else. Um, I don't think there is a, an easy answer there. And I think the US has been very slow because we're kind of divided right now on, on a lot of topics and this one as well um, as to why that matters, why it matters so much more to certain communities than others, connects into all of the conversations around race and gender and privilege and wealth in this country. Um, you know, who, who can afford privacy? is an unfortunate question that comes out of this. Right. If you don't have the money or the access to technology or the access to the right type of lawyers, then you literally can't afford privacy. It's not great. And the, uh, if we look at the, yeah, was, the description I hear people always say is that thing, like we, we only seek God in moments when we we know when huh. we need them, right? Like the yeah. uh, somebody gets through an accident and they kneel down, kiss the ground, and they say, "God, if you get me through this, or or whatever." And I guess I, I say, "God is a you know a, a thing," yeah. you know. Uh, uh, we we will make we will make personal sacrifices in temporary state with yeah. the hope that it will have a lingering and and long term benefit on the other side of it and personal privacy and uh you know data protection personal rights protection at a physical you know yeah. sense are are ones that you know inalienable rights and we say about things like this right we we use big words to describe certain things but and eventually this is what happens what what happens when you know, uh, when one right is pitted against another. And we, I think we finally reached points where we are testing this. We are. Absolutely. Where, where legal words have been created to cre describe protections. And now that we are effectively putting A versus B or, you know, peas versus beans, whatever your, your one versus the other, both in 
the in the meaning in the 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 hope of the language to be protected but now at odds yet covered by the same protection you know and it's sort of there's a lot of things that and when it comes to you know, look you know i i want my my city to protect me so I want them to do things to make sure that we don't do dumb things and we don't, you know, whatever, uh, you know, especially current health regulations really are, are testing a lot of things around people saying, hey, you know, uh, I'm happy to give this up temporarily so that we can get through what we, we know, you know, these are effective things. I know I'm giving it up now. When we're on the other side of this thing, it's there's the we will go back can, you, can and, you give it back though aha right and this is <laughs> this Once is the cats the, out of the bag as it were right uh we are and i don't want to use like slippery slopes but we are yeah but it is it, it is and and so i'm i'm personally torn in a lot of ways because in the same way as, as speech, right? Uh, you know, I, I believe mm -hmm. in, in free speech and including that which disgusts me. And, and it's really, really hard to know that I'm maybe not directly affected by a lot of what I hear and see. And, and so I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm represented fairly well in the world, right? Like I, I'm not, I'm not at odds with, you know, a lot of things. However, you know, I, so I, I recognize, so maybe it's easier for me to even to say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, 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 in the freedom of speech worldwide. And like, so obviously I'm Canadian, you know, so I, we, and we've got an even weirder thing. We, we gave that up really quick. We're like, we believe in free speech. However, here's like 28 things you definitely can't say. And that <laughs> list got really long, really quickly. Huh. And for you know temporary things and just like just like great code that temporary code is now just just wrapped around yeah. the the nucleus of of the constitution yep that, that hot fix that inevitably sticks around and becomes part of your product for the next 10 years yeah yeah, yeah. and and we when it comes to to free speech in in this country um there's a lot of good sort of visual depictions of, of the debate. And it, it all seems, from my perspective, to boil down to tolerance. And that's, um, I forget the right attribution for it, but you know, tolerance cannot tolerate the intolerant. <laughs> yeah. If free speech, and I, I do love that like um, EFF and ACLU both do such good work to protect free speech, including disgusting and offensive speech, right. but it ends at causing harm. Absolutely. Right, causing harm without consent. That is not an expression of free speech anymore. Right. Yeah, and then so when we move this into the data realm, yeah. especially with, with health data, because mm -hmm. I, I the first thing I think is like I would, I would happily know that if it could save my family's life, I would yeah. probably do things that I would not believe to be long-term correct. And, and, you know, but we, I will make decisions in a moment or, or in a shorter right. term, knowing that we could be towards a greater good. However, could, 
Yeah. I know, like I, it's, it's always in my mind. I'm like, ah, like I'm, I have to believe in protecting all of us against what could happen because that same data that's going to mean it could develop a vaccine or, or a, a, a treatment or, or something. I'm worried that that could then, they're like, oh, thank you for your, your blood that helps to derive you know, this, this treatment. We also noticed that you have a, a, you know, a, a potential to develop a disease in your 50s and therefore your insurance company is no longer going to protect you. And Absolutely. Like, and we know they will. Right. <laughs> we, we know, I think it was 23andMe, eventually got sold to a company that's now using that, all that genetic data for something else. So whether it happens at the company level or at the, the state level, we, we have plenty of, of incidences where um, private citizen data from one organization, one federal organization got shared or used by another without permission and consent. So we've reached the state as a, as a citizenry where we, we don't trust our government to do what they promise with our own data. And that's, that's I think the problem you're pointing out here. It's like, yes, we'd all jump and, and, and volunteer data to save lives, whether it's ours, our family, our community, the further away you get from that center, of course, the, the less the, the sort of selfish incentive or self-motivated incentive, but it's still there. But balanced against how uh, little trust people at large have in this country now, whether for good or, or you know, for, for whatever quality of reason, it's there. I'll pull back a little bit towards the confidential computing work for a second and talk about yeah, yeah. privacy preserving computation, because that is one of the main use cases that that the consortium hears about and talks about is, um, and at the US government and, and even like the Google Apple thing, all of that is based around the idea that multiple parties could um, audit a, a piece of code and verify its integrity. You know, it will do what is expected and nothing else. <clears throat> and then put confidential data, you know, private health data in, knowing that it will not be, it cryptographically, cannot be used for any other purpose and will be destroyed at the end. So if, if all of that works as intended and there's no bugs, um, you know, haha, because there's never any bugs in software. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> right. We, we're, still in, we're still in hypotheticals. We're okay. We, yeah, can, we, yeah. we can continue to live in them. <laughs> if, if it all works as intended and nobody finds or embedded an exploit that, that was hidden or whatever, the, the promise here is that we can create open source uh, solutions using privacy preserving computational techniques that could do the very thing that, that you're describing where the citizenry or the companies can do this in the open in a way that cannot be misused even by our government or other governments. And I, I love this, this you know, utopian ideal where open source developers from a bunch of big tech companies get together and you know, use math and science to do something that proves and demonstrates that we can, we can solve this problem and preserve privacy. It's not, it's no longer an either or, it's now both. It's just taken a lot longer. Yeah, and uh, it's, it often feels as we talk about the technology that's, that's already well in play, that people kind of get a sense that we're a little closer to a Black Mirror episode than they want to be. And, and unfortunately, <laughs> we we use that as a depiction of these sort of, yeah. uh, you know, these these dystopian sort of outcomes. And 
So this is the other thing, even when I talk about privacy, confidentiality, and, and protection, and, and, and everything in sort of the chain of protection and security, the unfortunate sense that if we can't do it all, then we sh we, people tap out, or they just they tap out of caring. Either of those is, is not good. And, and this is the, the, the sort of the thing of like, well, if I can't fix this entirely, then how do you, then, well, then I'm not going to start, you know, but we have to, we have to in the same way that if five years ago, someone had said that we would be able to reuse a rocket nine times. And I say this nine because at the time we're recording this, this is precisely how many times that a Falcon nine has been used and landed successfully. It would Amazing. have been out of, out of a novel, you know, yep. uh, an HG Wells novel, you know, uh, it, no one would have thought this could actually be, be real. Yep. So I think that people have to make sort of moonshot bets with privacy, protection, security, all these things that we're doing. That's why I, like I look at what confidential computing as a group is doing and in some pretty moonshot stuff. <laughs> it is, but it's, it's a worthwhile effort. Exactly. Right? Even if we don't realize that story I told about the communicator, um, the technology we build along the way to get there helps in so many areas from you know, machine learning and protecting people's privacy as they do that computation to healthcare to everything. Uh, it's I, like- it, it, And the, the, and I apologize, sorry, I cut you off, but the, the, the pathway there will open up discoveries of where we we have to either diverge or in fact we discover things that we never realized we could do and i think of it as like you know post-it notes is sort of the very you know a, maybe not an appropriate example but ultimately where some guy was trying to invent good glue invented bad glue and that bad glue was particularly good at being reused and that reusable glue has resulted in one of the most massive outcomes financially and you know for 3m and and you know so we look at what it yep. in trying to do a great thing you discover a lot of really great things along the path and i think that yeah. is why these moonshot and consortium approaches are good however the yours and i'll say the the the, the confidential computing consortium is going to be more successful in my opinion because the outcome is more important than the person who has their name on the patent along the way absolutely the, a lot of open source communities lack the ability to separate from the heroism of being the one that commits the code that gets the patent that gets the distribution that does the whatever we in committee lose track of the greater goal. If I, 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 I maybe I'm not describing that, but like we really, really, as they say, you know, a, a, a camel is a horse by committee. And, and that yeah, very yeah. much describes a lot mm -hmm. of, I've, you and I have lived through a lot of open source oh, yep. <laughs> projects that have yep. come and um, gone and, and succeeded. And, and, and benevolent struggled. dictators. And, right. You know, how project succession happens and which ones, which project comes and goes or which leader comes and goes from project. And sure, we all like 
well, some of us like getting up on, on a stage and, and enjoy that. And you know, like I miss, I miss the big crowds of conferences, but the work that that I participated in and you know, I think where we met was OpenStack, the work there was bigger than any one person. And the the governance of that foundation was originally set up to avoid any one person being the BDFL. And the consortium, uh, the confidential competing consortium's governance is similarly set up so that there isn't one person or one company or one project driving it, but the collective effort towards this shared vision. Absolutely. And the other thing that I'm that I like about the approach and a sort of like a I'm always again sort of torn with, you know, where the foundation I, I often the the committees, the the foundations effect on things are not unlike a, a, a union in that the union by its nature is meant to protect the workers and it is good. And the methods they mm. use our are good in a pure hypothetical when tested against true human psychology doesn't work out and the union bosses live in really big houses and the union workers don't right and so i fear foundations for the same reason because i often feel it's a little bit sort of union-esque in it's it's told as a story of protecting and embracing the developer experience but in effect it's it's getting right. the getting people on stage to talk about the thing and not actually getting the developers a true experience that they they need in order to be successful. Yeah, and there's there's lots of conversation and, and drama between different foundations and companies of like which one's doing what and why and where's the money going. Um, at least so far, we've managed to avoid a lot of that. Um, Hopefully it stays that way and we can you know, continue getting everyone to work together towards a common goal rather than just for their own good. But at the same time, any foundation needs to balance the you know, enlightened self-interest of all of its members. If, if a member isn't getting something out of the participation, they're not gonna participate any longer. Right. And so that is a delicate balance for anyone to do who's leading such a foundation or, or representing their project or company in it. And, and this one's young enough that we're still defining a lot of what that, that sort of reward cycle might look like, both for companies and projects. You know, it's only a year old at this point. We haven't had our own um, industry event, like a, a conference or something. We just had our first uh, live streamed webinar um, a month ago, I'll say, say about a month ago. And we've had a couple publications we've put out, um, but it's, without like the giant fanfare that, that happened around uh, Kubernetes and the CNCF. Like, I, I remember day one at um, uh, OSCON when that happened, like there was this huge fanfare, big stage, bunch of, of like, you know, VPs and executives up there in their suits talking about how great this collaboration is gonna be. Like there's a lot of that fanfare that does go on. But I, I, I think your point was, Maybe it wasn't that I'm just going to make another point. The, the like, it's important to understand that these are separate and, and both have value, but not to lose sight that we have to be building a collaborative space for the developers to do the work. And it's not just a marketing exercise. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and that's a, that's a, a great description of, you know, really what it is. And, and it's 
and I, I'm very hopeful in that just like any startup, which becomes a large, which becomes a successful enterprise business or, you know, whatever, I, I shouldn't even use the word startup and enterprise, but you, you want a, a company that begins from humble beginnings that has a big vision and then grows a team to execute on that vision. And then along the way, maybe some pivots occur, maybe some adjustments occur to the way that it's executed. However, the vision is to the core and that every major successful business is generally, when we look back through it, the slide that got taken to the original investor is the thing that's still talked about on a daily basis. And when I look at the mission and the vision of the consortium, I see the potential for this to carry through pivots, challenges, some moonshot goals that may not be fully realized. But if we believe and, and we bring people through that mission and that vision and give them the opportunity through funding and, and governance and all this amazing stuff, we've got the right players at the table. Glad to hear you think so. And it's, uh, I, I'm thankful that you're among it because there are, again, like I said, I look at the folks who I know have the right, the right belief system and the right ability to understand, you know, where we need to do things that are going to get us to the realize these visions. You know, you're, you're definitely among a small group of folks that I see have been successful and can be successful in doing some of this stuff. Oh. It's a, it's an, it's not an easy task. It's not an enviable one either to, <laughs> to be <laughs> sort of uh, representing a vision. Yeah, well, I appreciate the vote of confidence, and it's uh, it's nice to have a new adventure, right? OpenStack was was a lovely and amazing and grand adventure for many years, and it's really nice to have another one to to be, be a part of and come in at the again uh, pretty early and the same even earlier than when I joined OpenStack. Yeah, that's the the interesting thing is that these are, uh, you know, when when we, we like you and I and a lot of folks in our peer group we are, we're like way too close to this stuff. So we okay. have a very sort of jaded and, and yep. overly experienced view of a lot of these things. And we see, we read way more into a lot of things yeah. because we've been like far too close to seeing stuff. And, you know, people talk about, you know, companies that come and go and we've seen there in the end, we know we will all survive a lot of these. Yep. We'll survive the logo changes. We'll survive the, 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 and the project change. renames. And yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll survive the, you know, the forking of some project by some company and all of that will, will happen and there'll be drama and there'll be finger pointing and people will make new technology and it will continue and we'll find an, another problem that needs to be solved uh, and we'll work on it. And it's part of what I'm enjoying about this is getting to pass on a lot of that experience to other folks who are, who are coming into open source Sure, they, they, you know, at this point, everybody's used open source. They, they know what it is, but they haven't been part of the leadership of the foundation or the leadership of, of the project. 
and getting to pass that on and say, great. So here's, you know, two other structures that I've helped to build. And here's the template. Now I'm going to, I'm here as a resource, but you all get to build and decide how it's structured this time. It's your experiment. And, and I'm here to support you, but not tell you how to do it. That's, that's pretty fun. It's, uh, it's nice to see it come through. You know, it's, yeah. we, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's parenting in, in technology sense in that yeah. we, we survive the journey ourselves. And so we impart our wisdom on the next generation <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> right. And with, uh, the right amount of controls and freedom, a beautiful yeah. balance of, uh, I'll just say that I maybe would not have done it this way. This is how we've done in the past. However, I'm going to give you the freedom to, you know, yeah. sure you try, you, you, let's give it a whirl, you know? And I do like that. There's a lot of, there's just so much opportunity, I think, as a, a technology community, yeah. as a society to be able to embrace experimentation and to bring new ways, take the lessons from what we've done both yeah. oh, gosh. correctly. And, and like I said, I don't believe it as right and wrong, but simply that it was executed against, you know, and succeeded against the, the belief of the outcome yeah, like versus we, we tripped. <laughs> Oof. Like OpenStack tried to have this unifying architecture. And, and I know I learned a lot from that experience and from trying to get ironic out of the sort of, well, you, you have to use it all together. You can't use anything by itself. And ironic was turned out to be very useful either all by itself or just with a couple components. And Kubernetes originally was like, or sorry, CNCF was a bunch of little islands of projects, but then they kind of all got lumped together with Kubernetes and how it all integrates became a very strongly debated um, uh, and opinionated space. And we're trying again uh, here to not tie the projects together to a single architecture. Let's say that you know, a, anything that fits the mission is welcome in. And we've got, I think, nine projects, eight or nine uh, now in, in, you know, in or coming into the foundation. Um, but no, no declarative architecture that says, you know, we can have one of A and one of B and one of C. And if you are not A, B or C, then you're not welcome. And if, if you're number two, then you're second class or, or protected. We're, we're not right. doing that, right? We're very definitely not. But we are starting to see paradigms emerge. We're like, okay, well, there are some projects that, that do this kind of thing. And there are some projects that are definitely in the space that don't do that, they do something else. And, and in the past month or so, I've actually put together a draft, it's gonna change, of what that sort of description of the space looks like. We've got you know, hardware-enabling libraries, and we've got orchestration systems and attestation uh, libraries like we don't even yet know what the whole space looks like it's super early and that's really fun yeah and the interesting thing is that many of the companies and the approaches and the teams and like uh, stuff along the way will basically be like stages of a rocket in that they will yeah. propel us to the next you know part of the orbit and then they will be you know dropped off and, and plummet into the ocean, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in the way that yeah. a, a lot of like the, the open container initiative and, and a lot of these things where every, literally everything that was 
that began that is is effectively gone you know like it was it was pulled into different directions it was all the companies that of the people that were at the companies got bought and sold and changed and 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 yet they all had a lasting impact right that right. the technology they built the paradigms that were championed by some of those companies and projects that are no longer around shaped the technology we're all using today and we can see that um across so many different domains, not just cloud and containers, but you know, coming back from, from databases in the early aughts, we see the same sort of, of wave of, of rise of innovation, whether it's open source or startups. Most of them have now been forgotten. And yet collectively that experimentation of finding new paradigms, we have, uh, you know, the, the dominant key value stores like etcd now for cloud native computing, the paradigms that, that these evolved from, the white papers that were published as the sort of seed of the project came out of all that work. Right. It's, uh, I, I, I like to think that every day, every day I wake up and I think this is the most exciting day to be in <laughs> technology. <laughs> it's a little scary sometimes. We've got great potential. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I applaud you and, and the and the folks that are that are leading the leading this area. I'm excited to see how it uh, how it evolves uh, about a year in and and many more to come. And uh, so uh, with, again, we've covered a lot of crazy ground. We uh, Ava, thank I you. I love how we wander. For, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and it's and I I think I I said it throughout, and and I I want to remind people. It's just like the ability for for us to explore challenging areas it's and 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 i and it's good that we i i very much appreciate your thoughtful approach to every part of the discussion and the willingness to walk through areas you know and and i like to do this because it, it, if nothing i tell people that I'm not going to give you a bunch of answers, but I'm going to open up some questions that you can personally explore. And it's and it's really good. To, I I always walk out of our discussions uh, smarter and more inquisitive. Uh, so I thank you for for spending the time as always. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to to chat and see where we go and and learn from you along the way too. And uh, of course, for folks, uh, we'll, we'll have links in the show notes. So you can go to confidentialcomputing.io uh, and find out more. The presentation is there, which kind of walks through around the mission and the goals. And, and we'll obviously see more content out there. And if you just Google out Confidential Computing Consortium, uh, there's a lot of great names. And also, you know, really uh, one thing we didn't go deeply into, and I, but I just want to say it as a close, is that the best success for open communities exists because of commercial companies that understand the benefit of supporting them. And it is truly a bi-directional win. There has to be a commercial, to some degree, a commercial benefit to maintain support of the open community and the open goals. And again, when I see the folks that are involved in this at the onset, I see the potential for great success, both by the people that are doing it, the people that are leading it, and the people that are backing it. And that's a, a sort of trifecta of, you know, the, 
in open communities, open technologies, and 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 open source, it's a uh, it's not an easy path to walk, and I'm thankful that you are are leading the the path uh, with the team. Thanks Excellent. Again, Thank you again, Ava. Uh, we will we will chat again soon. Uh, this has been fantastic, and of course, for folks, I uh, do. Uh, oh, I guess remind folks where they can follow your uh, follow you online and, oh, yeah. and, and get in touch. I, I we didn't yeah. open with that, of course, but uh, you know, where can we uh, reach you? Uh, through of course. the internet. You can, uh, anyone can find me on Twitter at uh, Ava Voom. Uh, and I think my GitHub is not all that active, but you could always find me on there, uh, Ava Online. And Excellent. Eric, thanks again so much for having me on today. Thank you.